0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to our usual Saturday chat, Lao Di same time, same place. And, um, I have, um, Anne Waltner and with us. Hi, Anne. Hi. And Wai Yee is, uh, currently having internet issues, but we hope that she'll be able to join up soon. So today was, um, Advertise as talking about chapter 23, but as for those of you, you stalwarts who have been with us all along, you know that um, conversation is free form and we can free range over whatever people wish to talk about. And so please do join us. Um, I, I'm sorry, I think at the end of last time, um, I did see a hand up and I'm sorry I missed that. So please do alert me if you do want to join in and speak. So that we can bring you right up into the speaker zone. But uh, two things I did want to launch into, this is Eileen and this is Reading the Stone Saturday Chats. And I just want to mention a few upcoming events. One is, um, Anne will be going in person to the San Francisco Opera to the reprise or the uh, the second premiere of Dream of the Red Chamber as being staged there. The book that's written by Braisheng and David Henry Huang. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah. So, and it's, um, of course, we talked about this previously, a vastly condensed version, focusing more on the love, tragic love triangle, Mm -hmm. and so missing some of our favorite key characters. But this is, um, um, you could say, inspired by Dream the Red Chamber, but it should be very interesting. But Anne has let us know that not only will the privileged few who attend the opera be able to see it but the san francisco opera will actually be live streaming dream the red chamber um of the matinee on june 19th so i do encourage for those of us who can't make it to san francisco to watch it and maybe we can even talk about it afterwards so that would be a lot of fun and i think
1: if i think that i think the tickets cost 25 dollars, and if you buy a ticket the live stream will be available for 48 hours after the matinee so you know you don't you don't have to you don't have to schedule it and i know they were going to live stream live, live stream live stream don giovanni today or tomorrow and they had to cancel it because staff oh staff were out because of covid oh Um, I don't think it was the performers. I think it was the technical staff. So I think everything, everything is a little, you know, shaky, but they're, they're planning, they're planning to do it.
0: So, yeah, that is, that is the, um, you know, recently um, a a friend of mine, Wang Anqi, you know, who is of course the great theater doing it in Taiwan. And she is staging um, uh, several important live shows this summer. And, She was just posting about how fingers crossing, fingers crossed for, um, because a lot of, uh, technical crew as well as actors have been going Mm -hmm. down for her picking Mm -hmm. up performances. So, um, so, but anyway, this is happening and I'll, we'll be sure to remind you if you're interested. And we'd love to hear Anne talk about also her impressions. I mean, she has a lot of this on her website and her book. Um, that is online linked from readingthestone.com. but um, we'd love to hear also your thoughts on this restaging, whether there are some changes, are
1: there going to be changes? Do you know that? Or- I don't think they're going to be major changes. I right, think,
0: right. Um,
1: I mean, it's, it's mainly, I think, I think the cast is quite different, mm-hmm. um, but I don't, I don't think there, um,
0: I don't think there've been, there've been big changes. Right. So good. So that's one thing that we want to mention. The other um, upcoming event is that uh not this coming week, not the 18th, but the week after we're going to be having our first um live meet, of course, a live meet that is still virtual, but we'll have a zoom gathering. So I hope that that will allow all of us who have been regulars to um, at least see each other face to face or zoom screen to zoom square to zoom square and be able to um have all of you um join the conversation a little more fully and this is also this is actually part of the duke uh asian pacific studies institute book club summer which i've always been um, a part of and so it's also a chance for um primarily staff, but not, and and also friends to join in and read some good books about Asia in the summer. So some people will be slightly newer or uh, not as advanced in the reading as um, you, but I hope that this will be a fun kind of, you know, um, onboarding moment for those who want to join. Um, In terms of our planning, we today theoretically we're at the end of 23, though I know some people are still joining in and reading at various stages and questions both um for previous chapters and forthcoming chapters. And we will um try to read up to um trap maybe the next few chapters up maybe through chapter 26. So so talks first volume um in the next two weeks, next week. And then maybe for, um, our gathering in two weeks, it could be just a free for all and we could just, um, do a little recap or reprise of the entire first volume since we're primarily following hawks, even though, as we've said, you know, um, all editions welcome. And, um, I know there are people who are reading, um, both the illustrated version and also versions of other language. And of course, reading bilingually and reading only the original. So, um, so, um, I think in two weeks will be a great chance to talk about translations, to talk about different editions, to talk about some of the larger and general themes that we now see emerging. Um, now that we've read a good chunk of the novel, a small chunk, but a good chunk and, um, also talk about little, our further reading plans. But, um, so this week, let's open and talk about, uh, chapter 23. But um hope you post your questions in the hashtag or if you want to just come on stage and chat please do so um i did want to say that um hanan shared with us something really fun not fun for the people who are taking exam but fun for us which is that this year's Gaokao or this year's general you know sort of high school, college entrance examinations which is this um you know huge endeavor you know um uh, this year in the PRC the one of the qu- essay questions was in fact on um, the naming chapter the, or a naming instance in uh, Dream the Red Chamber in Prospect Garden something that we've talked about in past uh, Saturdays. So I thought that would be kind of a fun place to start and I don't know if people had thoughts about that and do you or did you what did you think about that as a kind of essay question in the college exam? well,
1: I think it's a really hard essay question. In a I did
0: too. Course. I thought that was like on that for a kind of on the spot question. That
1: yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, the, I mean, we've, we've talked about naming in several registers. I mean, naming the naming of places and then, and then the naming of people and the way. Um, I, 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 I mean, I, it really it really does seem that pros- that the garden is not finished until it's named. And then I think in early in chapter 23, um, Euin wants to write the inscribe the poems on stone, you know, again, as using text to mark space and i think i think that's i think that's really interesting but that's that's not enough to make a whole essay <laughs>
0: right so uh yeah i mean i i thought that um given the kind of pressures of taking a test and that fairly elaborate setup uh, as an essay question mm-hmm. it would it kind of assumes that um people know it well right, right. don't you feel like there's, there's a kind of, uh, it assumes that you would glance at the question and immediately know what the scene but, is. Yeah, yeah. Right? And um, the question, but it, it interestingly, and I, and I think several people have mentioned this in our conversation online, that it interestingly intersects not only with our previous discussions about naming, but actually a lot about our discussions, ongoing discussions about translation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm which is, you know, are you, are you doing a direct translation and whatever, whatever that might mean, you know, even Mm -hmm. idea of direct and translating are both um, subject to interpretation, but um, are you doing something that is an obvious illusion that would allow the most number of people to instantly have a connection, whether Mm -hmm. it be sick or emotional or semantic Mm -hmm. with what is being um, interpreted, or are you, um filling in by uh also um performing a kind of cultural interpretation or kind of bringing into a new context and in this case of course even in the the entrance exam question the question is about aesthetics what would mm-hmm. you prefer in naming would you want to name the scene would you want to mm-hmm. name the mechanisms of the scene the you know the water etc do you want to name the poetic allusion to this kind of scene. So what the, what do prior poets say when they see this kind of scene? So the literary mm-hmm. embeddedness of it, or, um, you know, so who's interpret? So in, in some ways it's a question about translation too. Mm-hmm. I, like I'll call question. Um, I didn't know what uh, people like uh Handan, Brendan, et cetera, people who chatted about it and W do you want to come in and talk about that? I think several uh people were commenting online about this. You mm-hmm. don't want to misrepresent your your thoughts. But one of the, you know, so um uh but it I think it points to several interesting things. Like having, as I mentioned, having this on exam first kind of taps into this uh sense that um, uh, that this is uh, cultural knowledge, right? That there's no need to do any kind of um, uh, contextualization for the exam taker, for the 17-year-olds out there who are taking mm-hmm. the exam, that they can immediately enter into the world of the question, which mm-hmm. I thought was kind of interesting. And that assumption of cultural literacy about not one of the kind of, say, popular cultural representations of Dream the Red Chamber. So we talked a lot in the beginning about things you might know about the book, even if you hadn't read the book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but I would mm-hmm. say this scene is a scene that is more familiar if you know the book with a little bit more detail, right? That you, beyond the kind of uh, love triangle or whatnot. Like for example, if you had seen the opera, the, the Chinese American the opera, you wouldn't know the scene.
1: You wouldn't know the scene, yeah. Right. Well, you know, the the other thing about the scene that's interesting is there's a way in which some of the tension that, that some of the the fodder for for uh Jai Jung's criticism of value basically has to do with the the use of illusion and whether, you know, the way he's quoting old things and and you know, and so so there's a sense in which, I mean, this is probably this is probably overreading, but but part of the part of the tension in that relationship you could almost say it's almost about translation. I mean, it's almost about the ways in which you use the past to mark the present. And I th- I mean, I don't think Jia Jung is being honest and forthright. I think he's, you know, he's he wants to he wants to keep value in his place. But I think it's it is an interesting thing to sort of have a dispute about or to to be critical of your son
0: about, right? Um, absolutely. And then I also think. Um, oh, I see. Why are you joining us? Oh, oh. yeah. So, um, uh, why you take your time? Um, so I was just gonna say that, but even in the the exam question, so that uh, it says, it's basically to me a question about translation, right? It's a question about, because says, right? So uh, to give this name, is it Yong to directly take, take something of the name, you know, take, you know, basically allusions and then kind of transform them or, uh, right? So to take the scene at hand and to have a kind of affective response that then you can then, you know, uh, take and make into art. I mean, we're, we're almost in a kind of, uh, uh, you know, whole discussion of, of within the tradition about, you know, what is art and what is, what is, you know, basically trans, what is nature as transformed into art, which is also the subject of the chapter mm-hmm. itself. Right. So Hawaii, can you hear us? I think, uh, Wai Yee is still trying to join us, but um, Yee, if you can hear us, um, what we're talking about is that this year's uh, high school, college examination, Gaokao, had featured a question, uh, essay question that was based on the naming chapter. So we were, uh, you know, so we were just talking about that. But um, I think it's also a good place for us to think about, you know, like we said, uh, this ongoing discussion we've had in this group all this time about what exactly is the purpose, context, and audience for various acts of translation? Um, which is really the question that is being asked in the Gaokao exam. So I'm curious, like how they graded it and how what they considered a good essay answer. Yeah. That's really the test. So, well,
1: yeah. Well, actually, it it would be really fun to see anonymized published tri- published answers to see right. to see what what 18 year olds in China today think about that. It would be very interesting.
0: Right. And and actually um, um, they usually do publish those a little bit down the road or Uh uh that would be good. So that would be fun to see. And, um, but I think it also ties into, you know, chapter 23 quite well, right. Which is also about intertext and about, Mm -hmm. um, not, you know, what is going on in the chapter itself in terms of its relationship to prior literature or something we've talked about also previously. But also, uh, thank you to Brendan and Francesca and NW and people who've been sharing, um, and especially Brendan's heroic work in uh, scanning and loading for us the um, um, David Hawke's Shogal. Why do I not know the word Shogal in English? Um, the hand manuscript, the manuscript, yeah, the, the draft. Um, you know the his uh,
1: manuscript, uh, yeah.
0: That was called the draft manuscript. Uh, you know his handwritten notes for translation, and so. Um, and thank you for that. And we've been sharing that on the Twitter thread, but, um, but it's so wonderful to see. You know, one is his handwriting is really quite lovely and elegant in both Chinese and English, and so it's kind of fun to see his script, and. Um, but it's also really fun to see the kinds of choices he's making. And as several of you pointed out, of course, the way he's doing it is uh, a reflection of his translation choices. Brendan surmised maybe, or maybe Francesca did, I can't remember, um, that um, this is a function of his, probably his agreement with his publisher not to use footnotes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he has some appendices and notes at the end, but obviously in this Penguin edition, there are no on the page footnotes or end of chapter footnotes. And so it is a translator's decision to then, how do you embed um, contextual meaning or perhaps semantic meaning within lines or within um, general, uh, you know, sections. And um, this is something I think about a lot as a translator because um, um, I think, maybe David was someone who mentioned about the sinologist fear, but, or um, that one translates out of a kind of fear of being judged inaccurate by other philologists and sinologists and um, speakers, you know, of the dominant language, rather than thinking about your target audience, which is really the person who is reading, presumably who doesn't know the original text, Mm -hmm. and how best to convey that. And so I think that, it is interesting to see Hox's work because you see how he um, is very cognizant that he is translating for people who don't read the Chinese. Mm-hmm. So that is kind of lovely. Um, I should tell you all that why Yi has disappeared again, but that and she's still struggling with the, the the internet. But we'll 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 hope that she'll come back again. But uh, Anne, sorry, I didn't. Did I cut you off about thinking about Hox's uh, translation? Mm.
1: No, I mean, I think I would just reiterate what, what you said. Actually, if if I have a friend who likes reading English novels and they ask me for a recommendation of a translation of a Ming or Qing novel to read, I don't have to think twice. It's always Hawks, Story of the Stone. Um, because I think there there are ways in which it does. I mean, it's a, as an English novel, it's a strange English novel, but it works as an English novel. And I think. Um, I mean, part of that, you know, is, is sort of the nature of the plot, but part of it is the way, the way he's translated it and that he has really, he has really made it legible to, to people, to people who don't know a lot. I mean, I have a, I have a friend who really knows almost nothing about China and she read, she read all five volumes. It took her a long time and, and she loved it. Um, Why he's here. Hi.
2: Hi. 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 Uh,
1: it's terrible
3: hotel internet. That's what I.
0: Think. <laughs> uh, no problem. So um, we actually haven't pop- properly launched into 23. Um, we were talking about just quickly just two things, and one is that um, um, just reminding people that in two weeks we'll have a um, we'll have a Zoom meetup. Also, that um, Anne has mentioned the San Francisco Opera is going to do a paid live stream version that people can join. And on, on the 19th, and then thirdly, just that um, Wai Yi, if you haven't seen, but Handan has shared for us that um, this year's Chinese Gaokao, the general examinations, had a, uh, had a particular uh, essay question that is fo- focused on the naming scene. Um, in the oh, gardens. right so we were talking about you know but that is properly also a question about aesthetics and translation right um you know um what is you know what does you know what is considered the preferred method of naming or responding to an, a, a scene of nature before you um so so that that's uh, where we set up but I think Hanan just um wanted to talk so go ahead yes
2: <laughs> thank you yeah I just wanted to quickly jump in and um, go on record that I didn't initiate the thread on Solomon being featured in the Gaokao essay question. It was NW who
0: oh, okay, originally
2: good. shared his screenshot And I happily retweeted it, adding comments along the way. That's why maybe you uh, see my name <laughs> popping up a lot in connection to that. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, thanks to NW. Thank you, NW. Um, I also, yeah <laughs> Also, I want to say, so I followed up on with the WeChat video channel where a lot of uh, Chinese language arts teachers came uh, up to talk about this naming strategy, a lot of criticism, um, <laughs> a lot of analysis. The Criticism runs along the lines of um, like this being what being unnecessary, like is being used as a prop and this misled the a, a, a portion of the students to think that you need to know the work huh? know the novel to really tackle this question properly but that's not necessarily the case so it's like a red herring that's unnecessarily misleading in a situation where every second counts <laughs> you need to focus on the true question so according to a lot of them the true um, theme of this essay question is how to do genuine, authentic innovation. Instead of direct, directly copying something, mm-hmm. uh, you can also take the route of being inspired but keeping some thread, uh, shades of the original create uh, uh, creative work. Or you just go completely your own way, as happening in Qingfang, more or less completely your own way. So my personal response to this essay question was actually uh, a um, Bauhaus industrial design exhibition uh, that I went to and I asked a question because there was a lot of talking about just copying and then loosely copying borderline suitable. um, And it happened with the Japanese um, disc maker, like disc walkman makers and tape recorder makers and the US competitors and then Apple the radio and you know all the classic designs there was a lot of similarity copying back and forth and i was like oh soko cool. where do you draw the line between being inspired and plagiarism and all that kind of stuff so it was very interesting
0: well um, um then if i could just jump in and with a question so a couple things one was um you know, uh, why you just to catch you up, but the, the question was, uh, uh, so, um, but my question, of course, is how much time do they get for this, this essay? Do you know? Does anyone know uh, for, because this is only part of the test, right? So 60 minutes, 30 minutes for this short essay. Um, So that's one. The other is, um, I guess what you were saying about what the teachers were discussing is um, uh, if you know the chapter or the scene in question, the qingfang question, um, are you uh, you're assuming that Cao Xieqing or the author or the text valorizes, obviously, Yu's approach. So is it that the correct answer in the Call is that you also need to valorize the, you know, it's not really asking you which of these approaches is the right approach because it's basically saying Yu's is the right approach, right? I mean, so if you knew Hong Womong, that would be your conclusion. It would be weird to argue that Jia Zhen and his cronies had the right approach if in the context of Hong Womong. Um, or authorial intention. So I'm just wondering if if that is something that is un, what was considered unfair about the question. So Hanan, I don't know if you. Oh
2: oh. Yeah.
0: Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh no, I'm just wondering. Did you, you said you heard you yeah. were like l- lurking in WeChat yeah. discussions? That's
2: why? it really depends on how much time you spend on the questions that came before this essay mm-hmm. so but typically i think um 40 minutes is like a good average mm-hmm. so you need to have right. a good framework have a good theme and then fill it out with all the quotes and allusions and strong arguments and literature, everything so it's really tough some yeah. Chinese language arts teachers tried writing that under forty minutes handwriting. Uh, <laughs> it came up with a page and a half. Right. And read it, and it's you know it's tough to, to really like. So I, I'd be
0: curious. Uh, I I feel like I'd want to like see what why you came up with if she were given this exam question.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would will be in a very tough spot. I'm I'm a very slow writer, so. But
0: how many and how many illusions would you drop, and would that be considered a good response? But um, but in a sense that you know, I mean, uh, the whole idea of yeah, that you don't want to be baku, that you want, but you know, but in a sense, this is an act of baku, right? This is an exact. This is a act of saying, uh, you should valorize the unexpected and the the innovative, but you're really doing that only because you also understand in the context of this novel that is what you should valorize and so i feel like this is a really double bind trap but um but maybe we should go directly into chapter 23 thank you so much Hanna and n w for sharing the galkal question um but um maybe we should go and talk about so what is hao doing in if we have a sense of what he's doing with naming or at least presenting us the infinite possibilities of the relationship of a scene of nature, or a scene of artifice and one's response to naming it. And as Anne said, that the garden is not complete until it's named, um, properly named and amended and edited and approved. But um, what is going on in chapter 23 in terms of the character's relationship to another work of literature, right? What is, and and also what, um, um, a couple of different things are at play one is like phrases right you know a kind of description using one art to describe another um a second is of course uh this intertextuality um of what is what does it mean for Ching or for the author to have this intertext you know within embedded within his own story but anything think no i'm
3: There's a train running outside my window. This is a really terrible hotel. That's why I'm just a bit worried about turning my phone uh, microphone on. Um, Well, I think 23 is really important because that's when they move into the garden, right? So think of it this way. Naming the garden is in a sense, the completion of the garden, but the garden is not complete until they move in. So this is a really significant moment. And um, so the first thing they do is read this play and bury flowers. So we have to think about these two actions as highly symbolic and uh, really interesting. And also what is the connection between the two? Does reading the play take you to the burying of flowers or is there a connection there at all? Because you know, last week, Eileen, you were saying um quite rightly that reading erotic fiction is one of the oldest tropes in um in, in erotic literature. And typically you read, as in Ro you read um a, a book about um sexual adventures, and then you are um, inspired to to undertake some yourself, right? But here is something different. You read the play and they're inspired to bury flowers. So I always ask students that question is is really interesting what 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 is the causal connection there? What happens there?
0: or you know even you know going back to Tang Chuan Qi or whatnot that you know this this question that's constantly posed that kind of hovers on the surface of so many of them is really uh, maybe like the Ming erotic novel question is do you know what love is unless you read about it right so that there's always a scene of reading or understanding or a poem that somehow opens your eyes to the possibility of love and so is this what is going on in chapter 23 as well
1: well you you know value has this undefined restlessness and anxiety and he doesn't understand it and what his servant tea leaf does to resolve it is he goes out and buys books that are of a kind value you had never seen before. And so, I mean, I think that, you know, it, it is, it is reading as a step to a solution of a problem. Um, And one of the things that, that I guess I I noticed, I noticed last week um, because I read chapter 23 for last week is I was not You know, one of the things about rereading this novel is you always notice things you never noticed before. That Baoyu has a study outside the garden, and Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's where he kept the you know the more shocking of the of the books. Um, But I think I think it's interesting. It's interesting to know that he has a place outside the garden. And the other thing that that I think is interesting about Value and space in chapter 23 is it's made very clear that he is allowed that Yuan Chun says he can be there. I mean, the you know, the imperial concubine has granted him permission. And so I think there is kind of a I mean, there's an acknowledgement that it's a little bit strange. Also, in this chapter, we're told that he's 13, which I believe maybe is a little bit younger than he was earlier. Yeah. um, And so, but I think I think you know. I mean, I think that it's almost you know the fact that a text is seen as a solution to kind of you know the anxieties of puberty is 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 interesting. And and again, I think you know shows the the importance of of text and reading. So if, as you know,
3: as Anne said, so if you have some undefined longing, as, 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 <laughs> because it, the, the text is quite explicit about that, everybody else is in this state of innocence, right? But um, yeah. Ken my worst, He already has some sort of undefined longing, possibly sexual longing, possibly romantic longing. And this has to be mediated through literature in a sense, right? But he makes a distinction, as Anne says, between the books outside and the books to be kept inside the garden. Of course, an implicit assumption is that the world inside the garden is clean and what is outside, you know, is more negotiable. So a few chapters later, when you see Bao Yu being at a drinking party with Xie Pan and some other people in chapter 26, he actually sounds quite a bit older than, than uh, 12 <laughs> old person. So it's as if there's an age difference as well once he goes slightly outside. But anyway, um yeah so that's uh that's a really interesting point. However one one should bear in mind that there is some very explicit sexual language in um in the play as well in Xi So yeah.
1: Well and and do responds to 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 Xi I mean that 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 she maybe i mean it, i think that that her response is you know she can't put it down it was you know it was like nothing she'd ever seen and then um actually i i was surprised when i finished 23 that the that the flower bearing song wasn't in 23 it's not until it's not until 27 but i think um and and this is informed by um more actually by Paul Rouser's reading of the poem than by David Hawke's, but that there is there is a lot of um of subtle and polite and elegant eroticism, but eroticism in in Dayu's flower-bearing poem. I mean, she she you know be, being alone without a mate and and things like that. So I think I mean I think there is kind of a a strain of eroticism. But she can't imagine. She can't, I mean, she can't imagine an ending. She can't imagine what will happen.
0: Um so uh, you know, and this I might interject that downtown low, which of course is um talking about a scene a little bit later, but she says her question is when Ling Dayu is bearing flowers, is she bearing herself? Is she fulfilling her fate as Crimson Pearl Flower? Or is she rejecting that fate? Um, Big contamination, innocence contrasts with the other girls celebrating the flower festival a bit later. So, of course, this is a little bit later, but I thought this would maybe be a nice follow-up to what Anne was just saying. Um, Is it?
3: So, is the question um, whether the flower bearing is a kind of... um woman um, for herself as well yeah I, I think very explicitly marked as such yeah yeah. Because, yeah.
0: it's
3: right. about her death as well and anticipating the ephemer- ephemeral
0: morality of all things right but i think the follow-up question is is she fulfilling her fate fate as crimson pearl flower or is she rejecting that fate i guess So what is the fate
3: of crimson pearl flower to be, that flower is to be um, burdened with a lot of emotions. And the outlet for that emotions is a lot of crying. So it's true that that poem about burying flowers is also about crying, right? There's a lot of references to tears in that as well. Um, And it's, Well, maybe we can talk more about when we come to it. It's also different from other references to burying flowers, or which of which there are quite quite a lot in the tradition. But this this is quite different because it really features the person burying the flowers, Mm -hmm. not not just the act of burying flowers, not just Mm -hmm. lamenting the flowers. So there's there's a lot of self, right? There are a lot of references to herself as well. Very self
0: conscious references, yeah. Um, and this is an aside, but um, somebody who has just joined us, David Meyer, who has just joined us, um, starting to read. But uh, one of the things that struck him and his child reading is that the stone watering the crimson pearl flower with sweet dew reminded um, uh, these two readers of the uh, Le Petit Prince, the Little Prince, watering a, a flower. So I thought that was a that was a lovely little uh, uh, association. association.
1: Yeah, i I think that, I mean, the, the the question about burying the flowers and the relationship of the crimson pearl flower is a really interesting one. I think, and I actually have to say, I didn't reread the the burying flower poems, but I think that she makes a contrast between flowers that rebloom every year and human beings that just get older and so i mean i think that there's a way in which at the very at the very least um she identifies with the flowers the, the the fallen flowers are um remind her of her lost youth and what she must be all of 16 at the time but but i think you know the past the passing of time with Without a make, um, I think that all of, I mean, we'll talk about the, the poem when we when we get to the poem, but I think, um, and I think, I think that the eroticized reading of the poems is informed by knowing that she has read Xi Xiangji. I mean, that I think that all of those things um, go, go together.
0: So Anne was mentioning um, things that she discovered rereading, and that is true. Every time I look over something, and this is actually my first time reading Hawks, so it's been kind of fun for me um, just uh, to, uh, you know, read the translation. I've only read this pretty much in Chinese. And so But one thing I did notice is um, this uh, s- switch in perspective to Jia Zheng, looking at Jia Baoyu. I. That was a that was a moment that was a kind of a POV transition that I I had not expected or had forgot completely forgotten that suddenly we have Jia Zhen looking at his son and evaluating him and actually um, uh, sort of thinking of him rather positively mm-hmm. in chapter twenty three and that that surprised me I have forgotten that entirely um, or you know like rather one's memory of dajian is always entirely right. without layers right without any kind of subtlety or without any kind of um um relate, genuine relationship or kinship to baoyu except to the extent that baoyu um ple- you know sort of shows is a kind of stand in or shows off for him such as in the naming chapters and then of course later disciplining baoyu but um but so that that moment kind of surprised me yeah, what what do you make of Zhen's character? Or is this is he just too dull for words to discuss? But what is Jia? Does he stand in for all that is worldly, that is, which is different from, say, Xue, you know, Xue Pan or something? But as a kind of counterpoint to Yu. But you know, is Baoyu's father a, a different kind of counterpoint? Like all that is, um, all that is common, all that is learned in a very uninteresting, uninspiring way. And all that is which we don't hope Baoyu becomes, right? And Baoyu himself doesn't become.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a very simple answer, but I think Jia Jung is the answer to the question of why Baoyu doesn't want to grow up. Mm-hmm. I mean that you know that that um, it, it's he, it, it, it it's not Jia Jung's life is not satisfactory in Yu's terms. And it maybe isn't even satisfactory in Jia Zheng's terms. I mean, it's a, um, he's, he's not interesting. He's not, it's, you know, it's a, it's, he's not, he's not someone you want to be like.
0: Absolutely. So, returning to the poems, and thank you for sharing. For those of you who have been sharing, you know, Hox's translations as well. So, thoughts on the the poems of the seasons and what it's doing there. What is what is its? I hate to think always in narratological terms, but what is its function in the narrative? Um, But what? How are the poems themselves? A question that uh, Julie Sullivan has asked many times um, is you know is her kind of questioning about the quality of the poetry in Holomong. So I didn't know why well, you had thoughts on that or, you know.
3: So the, okay, I, I have to admit, I didn't reread, but from what I remember, the four poems are rather average, the season poems, four season poems, and even, again, poems that sound like a, older than a what a 12 or 13-year-old um, would write because the... The, the text makes a point of saying that, oh, when outsiders heard that is, right? that a 12 or 13 year old young man writing like this, of course, they celebrate it even more. But there's something, isn't there a line about um, the rain is hitting the window, um, and then he's still a bit cold or something? There's some kind of subtle erotic um associations mm-hmm. in the poem that that are not entirely age appropriate That's what <laughs> remember.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so it could be that he's just using the idioms and the cliches of this kind of poems right
0: but i think um so so uh and i think the the nar- the narrator's voice kind of makes that like exactly like what, what you were saying right like kind of telling us that the poems are not that great but they're The people were amazed that it was written by a 13-year-old and, you know, and a little And But I was wondering whether you feel like the author calibrates the poetry well in that way, that the various Mm -hmm. different kinds of poems that appear, in fact, do um, have a kind of mimicry of the kind of author who writes it, you know, the age or the sophistication. I personally
3: think so, and I I think that he's, he sticks those poems there almost as a way of saying, um, you know, so Bao Yu has a type of sensibility that would um, fit the environment and um, would, would fit the expectations of the outside world, but, um, but he's also so much more, I mean, his feelings, his, these inchoate feelings are also not addressed by those poems. I mean, these are the quotes of um, a dilettante wealthy young man, uh, perhaps already um, involved in some sort of dalliance uh, with mates and so on, would write like that. And so Bao Yi may be writing in that persona, maybe that's what's expected of him, but he's much more than that. And so that's why all the readings, all all the jokes, all the, Um, you know, or or the the act of burying flowers, all that comes later, right? Yeah.
2: Well, and, and, you know, it is,
1: it is those poems that get him, I mean, fame is maybe too strong a word, but they get him noticed in the outside world. I mean, in Mm. a sense, those are poems that leave, leave the garden. I mean, he's maybe not yet in the garden, but they leave the house and and he gets a certain amount of um, attention from people outside of the family for having written those poems. So, I mean, they're kind of, they're kind of his exterior self
0: in a way. And people are copying them and literally posting them on walls and- Right, uh, right. And so, um, but speaking of intertext, right? So what about Taiyu's Dayu, response to the reading of, yeah how did you know, so we've talked a lot about Bao Yu's coming of age in terms of sexual age or emotional clarity, non-clarity. But how about Dai Yu and her feelings or, you know, emotions or sexuality as aroused by the poems that she reads in the play?
3: So first of all, I have to tell you um something totally irrelevant because the the text said that, you're doing fine, right? The time it takes to eat a meal, she finishes reading the play. So I actually tried to do that to make sure that <laughs> that's doable. And I have established that it's doable if you don't read the commentaries.
0: <laughs> if you read how, the- how, how elaborate your, your meal is. <laughs> <laughs>
2: your
0: a meal, meal- is
3: yeah. about an hour, right? So if you eat slowly. Anyway, um, so what, what, what is the lesson that Dai Yu learns from it, right? right? All this romantic erotic language, what does it do for her? So that's, that's also very interesting. So later on, um, a few chapters later, uh, she, she is waking up from her nap and she actually cites the line, right? Every day with this vague longing, um, I wake up. Half Half aware of all these Longings and so on so she actually Talks about Qin si. Um yeah. yeah But it's hard to think of Dai Yu as um, Having some sort of actual Sexual awakening which she's probably A yeah. sexual person in, in all Of literature I don't know
0: <laughs> Well it, but she she Has definitely a, a kind of romantic Awakening and that maybe this is a, a Good question uh, that David Uh poses for us um not just in terms of but so david says maybe a too obvious question does bao yu make a connection between physical lust and emotional connection he's had sex with aroma and probably qingzhong does he think of Daiyu or bao chai as potential sexual partners are they categorically different um and of course the scene in earlier chapters where he's sniffing Daiyu's scent Right and tickling her in the bed. Uh, definitely one thinks that those lines are a bit blurred for him. But what do you think of David's question? You know, does Bao Yu put these in different categories? And then in turn, that answers is a is a question for us about Dayu too, right? Does Dayu in her reading of Xi Xiangji, she, is she having a kind of also emotional and romantic and sexual awakening, even though it's why he says the sexual awakening bit is not ever. Uh, a point of Dayu's uh, characterization in the novel. I,
1: I think they are different categories. I mean I don't I don't think his relationship his his sexual relationship with Aroma is just physical lust. I mean I think I think he cares for her but he cares for her in the way you would care for a a maid. I mean and and I think that there is a way in which um in which both Dayu and Bao chai are unattainable outside of marriage um and and I think they know that and he knows that and
2: um i i think um
3: the 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 thing is for for the unsympathetic characters, like Jia Lian or Jia Zhen, or maybe even, I guess Jia Rui as and, well. I was gonna say for all the men. All the men, yeah. So, <laughs> for most of the other men, maybe aside from Qin Zhong and Zhang Yuhan, for, for all the other men, it's, oh Liu Xianglian. For all the other men, most of the other men, they're really what um Disenchantment describes as yeah. mm-hmm. right? Man driven by predatory lust and and so on. So the distinction is very simple for Baoyu. Yeah. The is the distinction is not at all simple because remember disenchantment praises him for lust of the mind. Lust of the mind, yeah. It is a profoundly ambiguous term, right? Does it mean that yeah. um, the excesses are only in yeah. the mind? Um, but does do does this? Fixers, then translate into also physical desire. And disenchantment is, is pointedly ambiguous about that, right? Because if it's only in the mind, why does that dream have to end with sexual initiation with disenchantment sister, who, as we have said many times, looks like a lot of people, including Qin Keqing, Lin Daiyu, and Xue Baochai, right? So... And there are scenes of physical intimacy like in chapter 19 when they're lying in bed together talking about use Yu's uh, warm fragrance and all that or in another scene a few chapters later when Bao Yu is staring at Bao Chai's arm. I think it's chapter 29. Mm-hmm. Oh, if we're growing on the person of Linda Yu then I may get a chance to touch it but now it's just really no chance. So there's definitely physical attraction there. There's um, the sexual feelings as well, perhaps, but it's, the author also, also doesn't then translate into a, a frank and um, straightforward sexual desire. It, or it's not described mm-hmm. in such ways, right? It's uh, something more vague, but also certainly not entirely platonic either.
0: So, you know, um, so David actually goes on to say, Xi Xiangji, another side of seeing Xi Xiangji as Daiyu's erotic awakening parallel Bao sexual awakening. His is physical. Hers is an erotic literature. Is that the girls are water, men are mud thing? <laughs> so, but you know, I, I was uh, thinking, you know, and the, we've talked about this and way you referred to, to this earlier today is that, um, a lot of these scenes are set up exactly as tropes. These are moments in different, literary works in erotic works but also in Ping mei and other works um or even as early as Tang stories or you know or for that matter of reading being the the kind of gateway drug to of erotic awakening and but what is happening always in homo is that it doesn't go that way as expected there's so many scenes in um story of the stone that seem like that they fall into a trope, but then there's a kind of countering of that trope mm-hmm. or it goes in a different direction or it goes in a different discussion. And so I think that's what makes this book kind of fresh and interesting. I, um, You know, both a kind of very uh, knowing reference, mm-hmm. but then kind of pulling back. But this is presumed on people who are also reading within this literary tradition, right? Um, I don't know, like, what do you think? Like that, that the impact is part of knowing or expecting a certain set of things to happen. And then those things don't happen. Um, which is, um, you know, so that's one thing I was thinking about in chapter 23, that this, uh, even Daiyu and bao conversation after she reads it is not... It doesn't go in the expected way, I think. It doesn't become a scene of flirtation in exactly the way that we might expect from romance. And um, the other thing that is the description of doing what is described in fiction is um, um, that uh, in Story of the Stone, there's always a repetition or a doubling. And so um, Anne was saying she was surprised that the burning flower poems is not in this chapter. But in in good story, of the stone form appears once, right, and then appears again. Again, and yeah. The emotional valence of bearing flowers shifts in its repetition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why well, you're muted?
3: <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to spare you the the rumbling of this very annoying uh, train. But um, no, I'm I'm I was just agreeing with you. Of course, part of it is also uh, very much following the convention because, you know, reading Mudanting and um, all the stories and poems about women reading Mudanting and being, this is the other play referred to at the end of chapter 23, The Pini Pavilion. All the poems and stories about women reading the play and being affected by it Mm -hmm. are are not stories about them, roused to pursue their lover, their love, or, or um, engage in some sort of liaison. All, all of those are tragic stories about how they uh, listen to that play and uh, uh, watch that play or listen to his areas and are, or, or read it or are moved by his pathos and then uh, lament their own sad fate and then a lot of them die young and so on. So this particular twist of moving from eroticism to some sense of um, mortality and ephemerality. It's not unique to the story of the stone. It's already in other literature as well. But Eileen is right in in this in in the in the refusal to um, give us a simple mimetic desire that has happened so many times in in literature, right? It doesn't do that. Of course, to do to do that is also to end the novel. So this is right <laughs> part, part of the problems, I mean we need them to have an articulated desire. Uh, we, we we can't have them becoming lovers or getting married or anything right. or, or you you need a perpetual tension.
0: <laughs> um so so just uh, as as our time is closing out but I Adam has a nice point here he says my take on these poems is to show Bao Yu as a competent scholar is a competent scholar and as why he says the product of a dilettantish young man at the same time they're clearly the inferior to what Taiyu has shown she can compose during the imperial concubine's visit Taiyu shows a poetic sensibility that exceeds anything that Bao Yu can produce and it's another example of the theme that the women in this novel are superior to the men in a variety of ways agree disagree mm-hmm.
3: right? well, i i actually think that linda's poems in chapter 18 are also not amazing you know because in, in chinese we are calling poems poems to to um, meet the expectations of your social, your your superiors, so you have to do them. You have to follow rules of uh, rules of propriety, and and she does them very well. So that's true. But Adam's point, in general, of course, is is very well taken. This is absolutely true, and you have to imagine yourself. I told my student this all the time. You have to imagine yourself the author, and then giving inferior poems to your own alter ego, and giving the best poems to other characters, which <laughs> most male authors would not be able to do. Right. Even even when they have a story praising the talents of the women they love, they end up quoting themselves much more, right. or just said that this woman is learning to write poetry from me. You know, you have a lot of that kind of memoirs or anecdotes, right? Is this is quite rare for for a male author to insist throughout no, the girls have the best poems. And of course, it's all his poems. He just parceled them accordingly, right? Yeah,
0: you know, but, you know, that's, I actually that is a kind of um, intertext or a kind of writing within writing that uh, is catnip for me. Um, so A.S. Byatt's novel Possession, where of course mm-hmm. it's, the you know, a story of two poets who fall in love and the kind of, and so one of the virtuosic things that Byatt does in that novel is she writes in the register, both the young woman poet and the older male poet, and they're kind of Robert Browning and, um, and so, but that kind of mimicry of style. But do you feel like Sao shui is mimic, is there is a, of course, these are his poems transposed, but do you feel like he's also fashioning different uh, characters' poems on different poets Mm. the way that you know by it you know very much makes her fictional male character right in the style of Robert Browning. do you feel like there's a there's yeah. a correspondence of these different people's poems these different characters poems
3: so i i don't think so i mean not very clearly so at one point in the novel linda you said that it she likes one line from Nishang Li Yi, I right? think right. at which point Bao you said, oh, don't don't pull away the dead lotuses because the dead lotus leaves is just the perfect vehicle for hearing the sound of raindrops. That's what Nintany said. So right. it, you, you know, um so there is a little bit of Li Shang-Yin in some of her images, but I I would I right. I don't think it goes. To that extent. I mean, I, I don't think the imitation is perfect if it's just imitation. Right, right. Um
0: But I feel like what Bayet, yeah. So, so I was just always curious about what you thought about that because um what Bayet is doing, of course, is she's letting the modern reader who's reading her novel have an easy shorthand, right? Like, you know, so you're you're a pre you're you're appreciating the virtuosity of my mimicry, but also you can um, use your familiarity with poetry to tap into these ideas, right, um, of these different poets or personas. So so anyway, so I was just kind of wondering about that, reading through these poems again this time. And for Hawks, is, of course, um, there's a whole discussion on Twitter this week among many people about the Qingfang translation, right? But the... Um, how uh, how he has to find different translated language registers for these different mediocre or less mediocre or brilliant poetry in Dream the Red Chamber is, of course, the translator's uh, challenge. Um, but um, our time is up, but I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you, Waii, for joining, even though the complexity of, uh, I'm sure, using your cell coverage in a foreign country. But and, um, but I didn't want to end with Brendan giving us a p- piece of information, which is that it just occurred to me that the Gaokao required a longer essay, 800 characters, than the imperial examination system did. <laughs> <laughs>